from the Swiss Alps to the Canadian Rockies, celebrating unique connections between Switzerland and Canada. Brought to you by the Swiss representations in Canada. Hello and welcome to this edition of the podcast from the Alps to the Rockies. My name is Urs Obrist. I'm the Senior Science and Technology Counselor at the Embassy of Switzerland. It is my pleasure to welcome today the Chief Scientist at Parks Canada, responsible for the Arctic, Dr. Martin Rajar. Martin Rajar is originally from Remigen, an idyllic village in the Swiss canton of Argau. But after a master's degree at ETH Zurich on alpine ecology, his academic interests led him to pursue a PhD in Arctic ecology at the University of Toronto, and he called Canada his new home since. Since 2019, he serves as the chief scientist responsible for the Arctic at Parks Canada, and prior to Parks Canada, worked at Polar Knowledge Canada, Environment Canada, and the University of Toronto. So welcome, Martin Rayar. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we talk about your expeditions in Canada's north, I would like to ask you about your career that led you from Switzerland to Canada. Well, thank you. To be honest, it's really a childhood passion and a childhood dream. Um, I grew up in the Swiss Jura Mountains and loved uh, nature. I loved the outdoors. And if you extrapolate that, where is the best place with the most nature and the most outdoors, you quickly come close to Canada because there's no other country with so much unspoiled wilderness, um, adventures to be had, uh, infinite. It's just a, a dream country. And as a young boarding at age 12, I knew that I wanted to go to Canada and be a biologist. So I was very clear on that. And then I prepared myself uh, with outdoor adventures. I practiced sleeping in snow caves in the winter and building fires. And I even built a log cabin in the Swiss forest, which did not go over forestry service. And I actually ran out of trees um, before I had the log cabin built. So that that didn't work out. So I knew it definitely had to go over to Canada. And uh, I did then do a biology degree at the uh, Swiss Federal Institute of Technology. And then after that, I went over to, I got accepted for a PhD in Arctic ecology on Ellesmere Island in, uh, at the University of Toronto. So that was my academic opportunity to go to Canada. And I did six years of research expeditions in the northernmost island in, uh, in the Canadian Arctic archipelago on Ellesmere Island. And uh, that was sort of, sort of my, my connection from uh, how I went from Switzerland to, to Canada. Great. As a child, I also read about the fascinating adventures of uh, people like Amundsen and Scott uh, who were racing to the South Pole. Uh, where did your fascination for this rather unwelcoming environment or areas like the high Alps or polar regions come from? Yes. So it's similar to you. I did read some of these incredible adventure stories when people uh, 100, 200, 300 years ago ventured into the Arctic, extremely challenging conditions and very poor equipment in some cases, managed to survive and wrote back tales for incredible uh, adventures. So that inspired me, particularly Fritjof Nansen's um, adventure when he drifted in the, in the Fram, a ship to close to the North Pole, and then had to fight his way back after the abandon, he had to abandon ship and then fight his way, his way back to Norway um, using kayaks and sleds and all that. That was very inspiring. But the explorer that impressed me the most was actually Wilhelmer Stephenson. And his philosophy was quite different. He coined the term the friendly Arctic. 
So unlike the previous explorers who all looked at the Arctic as this forbidding environment, cold and few people there, he looked at the Arctic as a friendly place that if you had the right knowledge, especially the knowledge that the Inuit have, then you could live there quite happily. And it could be an amazing place of incredible beauty that would be quite um, good for people to live in. And that vision really captured me. And especially after I read that Stephenson I went on a three-week um, hunting trip on Banks Island to supply um, fresh meat for his crew when they were traveling on the, the ship called the Carluck. Then a snowstorm hit and the Carluck, his boat, his ship drifted away and he could never find it again. And the three-week hunting trip turned into a five-year hunting trip where with the ammunition, the sled and the clothes he had, he lived for five years on the land with uh, connecting with Inuit and he proved that with the right knowledge, the right attitude, you could live in the Arctic for a very long time. He actually missed the entire First World War. When he got back from his uh, five years, he realized that uh, a world war had happened, that while he was in the Arctic, and at that time there was no communication, so he missed that. So that I found the most inspiring, that attitude, that vision, uh, and looking at the Arctic as the place of beauty that is uh, there to... Um, support people with the, the right uh, knowledge, the right equipment, and particularly his description of the Inuit who had that kind of knowledge and had it for millennia, who know how to live, not just to live and survive, but actually to live and thrive and to be, uh, be comfortable in that environment, to enjoy it, to love it. And uh, that's, that's what really uh, was something that gave me that vision of being an, uh, somebody who is, lives in the Arctic adapts to it, knows how to handle it, and then can uh, collect that information and pass it on to others and with a deep respect for the environment and for the Inuit culture, uh, people who have lived there for so long and really have that wisdom and that knowledge of how to operate on that land, how to live on that land and thrive on that land. And you yourself have gone to, to various expeditions, as you've already indicated. And when I read about those, just reading by it, my, uh, my blood uh, was freezing uh, because I thought, well, how, how is this possible to, to survive? Could you describe a little bit what it, what it was like uh, to do, for example, that foot crossing of Ellesmere Island? Or this, you, you also had a thousand kilometer snowmobile trip in, uh, in the Northwest Territories. Yes, I mean... The they are still adventures and they are still very physically challenging um, expeditions. That, is, that has really not changed. And um, what also has not changed is that some of the research locations, you are extremely isolated. You don't have good communication at the moment. The best we can do is satellite phones, but they only operate as long as the satellite is above the horizon. And since these are uh, polar orbiting satellites, they disappear behind the horizon every couple minutes after a couple of minutes. So you cannot have a long phone call that uh, disappears again. And the physical challenges of operating in an environment that is, uh, is cold, that is often very steep, uh, ice covered, those things have not changed. But what did change was understanding of how to live and work and operate in those environments. One expedition that we did on Ellesmere Island in uh, 1987 we did a two-week um, on-foot crossing to do a biodiversity survey. We carried 40 kilograms each in our backpack. So that's an enormous backpack. We had um, climbing ropes. We had glacier travel equipment. We had food for two weeks, tents and everything. And three years ago, I did another two-week unsupported biodiversity transect. 
So at that time, instead of 40 kilograms, we only we were down to 10 kilograms per person. And the reason why we were able to do that is because we learned how to live off the land. We carried fishing rods. We had pack dogs, and they were able to help us out, reduce the weight. So a lot of this knowledge we gained from Inuit of how to travel a lot more comfortable on the land. But I mean, the challenges are still amazing. And that uh, on-foot crossing that I, of Ellsmore Island, for example, with the 40-kilogram backpacks, um, led to um, the, the last leg of that expedition was 83 kilometers that we did in 23 hours nonstop, um, including uh, cr crossing two glaciers, about 15 different streams. So that, that, was, that was very demanding. But because we did that on foot, we also discovered along the way a fossilized petrified forest. So that's a forest that 70 million years ago was a real, a real forest with, uh, with large trees. But had then uh, the trees had fallen down and gotten petrified over the, the, the time. And at that time, the Ellsmile was at the same latitude. So 82 degrees north is where we were. And at, right now, all the tallest plant you find there is a couple inches tall, a little tiny uh, shrub willow close to the ground. So 70 million years ago, the climate was very different. And we had real forests and they are now stone but you can still find them. But that find we could also only make because we actually traveled on foot close to the ground and took those very challenging physical conditions upon us, but then as a result observed very closely what was happening. So that was a real uh, world-class adventure. Another one that I maybe I could mention is that one summer we had prepared to do a plant, a vegetation map to see what kind of plants are growing where. So we could do our, uh, our wildlife management plan for a national park. Then uh, that was supposed to be done through uh, helicopters. We were supposed to fly in with the helicopter, land at the spot, uh, took all the plant measurements, and then continue to the next spot and do that for about a week. Now, two days before we were supposed to go to the field, we got a telephone call from the helicopter company telling us that it was an intense fire season and all the helicopters were needed to fight forest fires in the boreal zone a little south to where we were, and that there would be no helicopter coming. Then our choice was, well, how, what do we do now? We can either cancel the entire field season, which means you lose an entire year in the Arctic, or we had the other option, and that was to do the, all the work on foot. So instead of flying from plot to plot by helicopter, we would then hike from plot to plot on foot, which meant that we had to hike 600 kilometers during that summer. And uh, we were able to put in a couple of food caches with a twin otter airplane, a fixed wing airplane, and did the whole survey on the ground. But as we did that, we also found several archaeological sites, tent rings, harpoons, and other items. We got within 10 feet of an Arctic wolf um, that was very tame. And we did a number of other incredible um, findings because we did this work all on foot. And after that, I did all my survey work on foot because I realized that by traveling close to the ground, you were able to observe so much more and get such a much better understanding than if you just flew in by helicopter, hopped from spot to spot and went back home. So after that, we did all of these kind of surveys on foot and got to know the land a lot better and also um, had incredible um, adventures. So that's, that's the second story. And the third story maybe I'll tell you about is how to get close to wildlife or how to not get close to wildlife in the high Arctic. Of course, all of us were keen photographers. And one day I thought I had the opportunity to take a close-up shot 
of a male muskox. Now, if to tell you about the male muskox, muskox is a is a species of uh, it looks it's something between a sheep and uh, and the buffalo. Um, it's very shaggy looking. It's about 600 pounds uh, for for a male, and around August, these males are generally in very very grumpy mood because the male muskox are fighting for the females, and the successful male muskox gets about 10 to 15 females which leaves about 10 to 15 males that have lost to get the battle and are then walking around, by them, walking around by themselves in a very grumpy mood. So I saw one of these grumpy muskox sleeping in a field of big stones, boulders at the end of a glacier. And I thought, this is my chance to get a good picture. So I snuck from stone to stone, uh, soldier-like, as a good Swiss. I, of course, I had Swiss army training, so I put that to good use. And I snuck up closer and closer to this muskox until I was about maybe 50 meters away from it, and then took my telephoto lens and took a picture. Now, the moment I took the picture, the shutter noise of that camera in that very quiet Arctic landscape sounded like a gunshot. It was, seemed so loud. And the muskox immediately jumped on its legs from a sleeping position to its legs and came horns down, rushing straight to me, trying to... Uh, probably do some very unpleasant things with his horns to, to my body. Um, luckily, the stone that was right beside me was steep and tall. So I managed to jump up, on, uh, scramble up on that stone. And I was on top of that stone. And the muskox jumped on its, uh, reared on his back legs, put his front legs against the stone and tried to catch me with its horns. Um, and his horns swished by about just about a couple hand widths in front of me. So it was very close. But of course, I took that opportunity to take some really good close-up pictures of that muskox. And I have frame-filling pictures of the muskox nose. These are like <laughs> full shots because I still had my telephoto lens on. I then switched to my normal lens and still got frame-filling pictures of the muskox head um, on, on my picture frame. And that muskox kept me pinned up on top of that rock for six hours until uh, it just wouldn't let me down, until it got hungry and walked away. Luckily, muskogs are not the brightest animals because it could have, if it would have been smart, it could have realized it could have just walked around the rock and be a backside. It was very easy to walk up on, but he didn't ever found that out. And so I'm still here to tell the tale. So that's one of the many adventures that we had. So every expedition is like that. You always have some incredible stories that happen. So. Well, I guess nowadays there would be an Instagrammable moment if you had a direct link to, to an internet connection. Yeah. Um, but speaking of those adventures, obviously, it's not just the, the risk that you're taking. Uh, it's some serious research involved as well. And, and, and that said, you have to have a team together that is willing to follow you in these rather unwelcoming areas. How, how do you actually put together your research teams? Is it primarily... The research fit? Uh, does it have to be team players? Do you have special training that you need to understand the skills that it takes to survive in the Arctic? Yeah, um, most of the time we take biologists with us. Um, uh, so it's usually biology students. So there's a senior researcher and a biology student. And then we take somebody uh, from the community. There's always Every expedition I have taken, there were Inuit on my team. And that's because they are from childhood on, they learn their skills on the land. But then you still have a choice. So you can choose who of the Inuit will come with you, which one of the biologists will come with you. And in that uh, situation, the 
most important is the personality of the people that come along. And so we look for people that are, um, first of all, friendly, because you're going to be sharing one tent with uh, one person sometimes for weeks. You have to be able to be communicate, uh, communicating well, positive people, respectful people, and most importantly, maybe a sense of humor, because things will invariably go wrong and sometimes very wrong. And then you have to see the funny part to it, and then you make it through a lot easier. And generally, it's good if people are patient too and very flexible. And in addition to that, there is a level of physical fitness required for some of these expeditions. People will not enjoy it if they're not already, they they enjoy that kind of challenge. And it also helps if people are pretty handy and creative. They have good manual skills. They can fix things and can deal with with unforeseen circumstances and solve problems. So that, but I would say mostly it's it's a sense you get through the personal chemistry fairly quickly if you can consider yourself spending time with one person in a challenging environment for many months and uh, I had one situation where I took a colleague along with me and the two of us were together in for three months during the winter expedition to Ellesmere Island so we spent three months together and that's not just a little bit of togetherness that's 24 hours a day for months on end sometimes you have a snowstorm you can't leave the cabin for two or three days and then you're in the same four walls for uh, for multiple days and so that's one thing and the other thing is that there's absolutely no news there's nothing new happening that not both of you have seen so you after you've told each other every story you've ever read every, everything has ever happened to you you after about two or three weeks you really have no new material to share and uh, the interesting thing that happened to my friend is that he then started to dream every night and over breakfast, he would tell me his dreams. And that was our news because there's nothing, nothing else to report. We tried the shortwave radio up in Ellesmere Island. And the only thing we could receive was a Russian opera radio station. And that sounded so depressing that we, uh, we could just not, we didn't even turn that on, even though it was the only new thing that we could possibly get. <laughs> and uh, with all the backpack of these experiences uh, you kind of started switching over into more managerial role uh, as I mentioned you're currently working uh, for Parks Canada you had a longer stint as a scientific director also with uh, Polar Knowledge Canada could you briefly outline the mandate of Parks Canada the government of Canada institution that celebrates its 110th anniversary this year and was actually the world's first national park service yes um, the Mandate of Parks Canada has essentially three parts. On behalf of the people of Canada, firstly, we protect and present nationally significant examples of Canada's natural and cultural heritage. So that protection part, that's what we're most known for. But secondly, we also foster public understanding of these places, the appreciation and enjoyment of them. And thirdly, we do that in a way that ensures the ecological and commemorative integrity of these places for present and future generations. And my work specifically is to do research to understand the ecosystems of the Arctic parks so we can better protect them, we can better manage them, and we can pass this information on to the public public for better understanding. Um, Where do you see uh, potential for collaboration between Switzerland and Canada uh, when it comes to polar regions? Um, Well, I would first say Switzerland is really has outstanding research and a long history on research in cold areas. In uh, in some ways, they have done Arctic research for 
longer than most other countries because they they have such a vast knowledge from their alpine work on, on glaciers and so switzerland has a lot of expertise to offer really a world-class science institution knowledge and long history to offer um, and that kind of expertise is really needed by the entire world and canada is in some ways the lo a logical place for Switzerland to apply that research expertise if they can, because it has the most diverse Arctic of the world. Uh, Canada has about 25% of the world's Arctic, but that 25% is very, very diverse. We have mountain ranges, we have a gradient of, that goes from temperate areas all the way to the North Pole. And, covers an enormous amount of uh, number of ecosystems. So it's, it's a natural laboratory that is very, very varied. For example, if you look at, the, um, at Siberia, Siberia is more, much more homogenous than, than the Canadian Arctic is. Canadian has several tall mountain ranges in the Arctic and other areas are, uh, are less, less varied than what we have. So Canada has a very diverse Arctic. We have incredible infrastructure in the Arctic from research institutions, research stations that are only there. But maybe most importantly, we have indigenous people that have lived in the Arctic for millennia that bring a vast body of knowledge and traditions of, that, of change, of understanding the Arctic, of navigating around in the Arctic or living in the Arctic. And that kind of wisdom can be brought to bear in doing really good research as well. And we found that if by collaborating closely with indigenous researchers, we get better research questions. They have an intuitive understanding of what's changing, what are important things to look at. And they can tell us, if you concentrate on this, if you concentrate on that, you will be getting better answers. So working closely with indigenous people, which we have in Canada, that's a real bonus to bring that perspective and that wisdom and that tradition to bear on, 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 on the getting the best possible research done. So by Switzerland working with closely with Canada, we can get the best of both worlds. We get this incredible research expertise that Switzerland has with the varied landscape and tradition with indigenous people and the infrastructure that Canada has. That's great. And, and hopefully uh, there will be further collaboration with institutions such as the Swiss Polar Institute uh, that comes to mind, for example. Um, we, we are slowly coming to the end already of our conversation. One question that I had, uh, I mean, for somebody like you who, have, who has lived uh, for almost 15 years in the north, uh, where do you see the future of Arctic research headed? Yeah, well, I would, I would say there's two parts. First is how research is done is changing very quickly. And right now um, in North America, the research in the Arctic is done with, uh, through indigenous partnerships, working with, uh, particularly with Inuit in the North, but other indigenous organizations as well, to benefit from their wisdom, their underground knowledge, their, their long experience. That is now pretty, I would say that's a must. You, you cannot do uh, research that is well received without that connection. So that is definitely one big trend that's already well um, underway. The other part, remote sensing is becoming increasingly important. As it, for example, we have done our glacier monitoring by landing with helicopters on a number of glaciers and taking measurements of uh, how much the glacier was being reduced, how much meltwater there was and things like that. Now we can do the same through the NASA GRACE satellite uh, constellation, where we can then measure the decrease in ice mass uh, in, in terms of how the gravity is being affected. 
And we can do that not just for one glacier, we can do that for all of the glaciers in all of Canada with uh, the NASA data. And that's an, I mean, that's an absolute breakthrough. You can then still go with the helicopter and verify it and calibrate that information. But you can now find over vast areas, get information that is very, very high quality uh, through these new satellites that have been launched. NASA, is, as I mentioned, is the gray satellite constellation. Sentinel-1 to 6 from the European Space Agency are now providing free data and you can get free anal analytical tools. So that's definitely another trend. The third one I would say is that we do more and more global integration of our information. That we, people, different countries don't work individually anymore. We are networked through professional um, associations and particularly the Arctic Council has played a very important role. And I'm very pleased to see that Switzerland is now part of this uh, international collaboration at the Arctic Council, where we do, for example, all biodiversity information that 15 years ago was held by each country is now shared through the Circumpolar Biodiversity Monitoring Program. Great. Thank you so much for this insight. Obviously, the Arctic will remain of interest, and uh, we're very glad to know that you have a keen eye on it uh, from a scientific perspective and uh, from a Canadian lens, but with a Swiss background as well. So I would like to thank you, Martin Rayer, for your time and your contributions to today's podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.